the deeper part of the half-known life, which is a quote that comes from Melville and Moby Dick, is just this sense that it's everything we don't know that really defines our lives. Love, faith, terror, wonder. Welcome to Real Fiction. I'm Laurie Messing McGarry. Today, renowned author Pico Iyer returns to discuss his latest book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, authors, and scholars to discuss their new book releases and investigative reporting. We take on big issues that are underreported, and I look for angles that impact our daily lives. If you're listening on KXCV KRNW, I'm glad you're here. Real Fiction episodes are available on the KXCV Bearcat public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in a moment with Pico Iyer, who joins me from Japan. My guest today is Pico Iyer, journalist, travel writer, and one of the most widely read authors in the world. He has worked for Time Magazine, reporting on everything from Islamic mysticism, Tibet, the back streets of Tehran, and has given readers insight about Japan, where he has lived for many years. His TED Talks, including The Art of Stillness, have been viewed millions of times. His latest book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise, It's really a culmination of a life spent examining the great cultures of the world. And it asks the question, does paradise exist only in the afterworld or can it be found in the here and now? Pico Iyer, thank you so much for coming back to Real Fiction to talk about your book. Thank you so much, Laurie. I'm really happy to be talking to you again. Well, you know, after our uh, conversation with your book, Autumn Light, um, I, I was reflecting on that conversation as I was preparing for this one, because there were a couple of listener comments that kept coming coming back to me. And it, there were two things. Um, I was asked, is it really true that in Japan, there's a belief that seasons change every five days? And the second was your advice that ritual and routine can steady us during uncertain times. So here we are again, a couple years later with your new work, and you are challenging us to conceive of what you call a half-known life. So what is a half-known life, and why do we begin this journey with you in Iran? So I think the half-known life for me means at least two things. The first is almost my suspicion or fear that in the age of information, which we now inhabit, we actually know less about the world than ever before, and least of all about the places we hear most about, such as Iran and North Korea and Cuba, which are always in the news. But when I've been there, the first lesson I've taken away is how little I know about them from a distance or just following them through the news. The deeper part of the half-known life, which is a quote that comes from Melville and Moby Dick, is just this sense that it's everything we don't know that really defines our lives. Love, faith, terror, 
wonder. We give ourselves the illusion of certainty and hope that we know how our day is going to go. But deep down, it's all these forces that are much larger than us, including, let's say, a virus or a forest fire or a tornado that really um, determine our lives. And I was very um, struck by the second comment uh, you mentioned from our previous conversation about rituals steadying us during a time of uncertainty, because that was probably the story of the entire world these last three years. We've mm. never li lived in a time where uncertainty was more acute, and we've never therefore needed more to find something that will steady and guide us in the midst of the unknown, which is, I think, part of what this book is about, because it's very much a pandemic book. And if ever there was a time in my life that, whether, that underlined how little we know, even about tomorrow or tonight, it was the pandemic. Yes, uh, and we are more or less still in a pandemic mindset. And uh, so I think the concept of searching for paradise, and for some, paradise may just mean contentment. It might not be some kind of huge burst of joy, but just a contentment. But one of the things that struck me in the book was you write this, you write a true paradise has meaning only after one has outgrown all notions of perfection and taken measure of the fallen world. Now, I know that there are a lot of people with very type A personalities who could use a little bit of guidance on that point. Could you talk about what you mean about outgrowing the notions of perfection? Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing when you mention um, <laughs> type A personalities, I do think uh, we're living more than ever in a time when it's so easy to say, I know it all, or I know better than you do. And we that's why I think we feel the world being so divided. Most of us are living very far from humility. And as soon as you have the assumption uh, of knowledge, it's often excluding everybody who doesn't share that assumption. In terms of the point about perfection, I don't think mortal human beings and perfection were ever meant to go together, which is why I think a lot of people in many great traditions do believe, as you said in the introduction, that paradise comes only after life um, in, in heaven or, or something beyond the range of the mortal. But uh, as soon as the pandemic uh, began, my mother, who was 88 years old, got rushed into the hospital because she was losing blood. Um, and when she came out, I, as her only living relative, had to fly over from Japan and really spend the next six months by her side as she was wavering between life and death. And in the midst of this difficult time, I was thinking, how can we make or believe in a better world or a better self? And that made me think, well, the only paradise I can really believe in is one that I would find right now in the midst of real life and in the face of, of death. And I know there are many people who, for very good reasons, place paradise in the past or the future or the afterworld. But for me, I was thinking um, the best, I'm living in uncertainty in the thick of reality, and this is the place where I have to make my home, and I where I want to make my home as as comfortable and and content as possible. I'm it's very happy when you used um, the word content. Uh, it's funny when if if I go to a temple not far from where I'm sitting here in Japan, there is often written down on the ground in Japanese the words "Look beneath your feet." In other words, mm. don't look up, don't look beyond, don't assume that paradise is around the next corner. This is the this is the only place you're living in right here, right now. And so this is the one place where you can find your paradise, probably an imperfect one, but um, 
a paradise that can't withstand real life or death uh, is probably <laughs> not one that's going to help us very much. And you know, as you said in your introduction, I've been lucky enough to travel quite a bit. So I've spent much of my life going from Bali to Tahiti to the Himalayas to the Antarctic to Antarctica, and all of those are transporting places in their ways. But as a traveler, sometimes I realize that what is paradise for me is far from paradise for the local who's living in very difficult circumstances in Tibet, say. Or I think, here's a beautiful Shangri-La in, in the Himalayas, but the very fact of my being here is going to change and corrupt that uh, Shangri-La. I am the serpent in the garden. And so I suppose traveling a lot, I've worked my way through lots of external forms of paradise. And I think all of us know that deep down, we can only find paradise within, in that contentment and peace that you described. But I think beyond that, I felt my challenge was how do I find paradise with an aging mother in a, a shut down world where things are quite hard. As I'm listening to you, I think about uh, one of the places you take us in the book, and it is not what I would associate with paradise. And it was when you were in um, Belfast, Ireland. Mm. In Belfast, uh, you this really. Uh, I've been reading your work for a long time. So when I ran across the passage that you asked to be photographed <laughs> in front of a street sign for Cypress Avenue, I was kind of leaning forward into the book. And going, well, this is this is a little out of character. So I, <laughs> why why Belfast? Why a street sign of all things? What occurred to you in that moment? that this might be a place where we can think a little bit differently about what paradise or contentment means. Oh, thank you, Laurie. You're, I'm so glad you alighted on that moment. I don't think most people would notice it. And you're right, because you've been reading me so, so for such a long time, you realize that I've been with my wife now 35 years, and I've never asked her to take a picture of me <laughs> right. till that moment. So we were in East Belfast on a Sunday morning on actually the longest day of the year, mid-June. And it was just this little modest, grubby house where Van Morrison <laughs> was born. And one reason I have been listening to Van Morrison for 30 years, and I think the reason many of us love him, is that you know, he's got this growling, snarling voice, but most of his songs are about visions of heaven. And some of them are actually from his past when he grew up in a world without clocks, without with chiming bells in the golden light of Ireland in, in midsummer. But he's really a mystic who's songs channel the heavens, it feels like. It seems like something is almost singing through him and are also explicitly about, for example, in one of his songs, going to a place called Paradise. Um, and what struck me was, as you said, Belfast, I've always associated with the Trolls. It's this very violent sectarian conflict. And the area where he grew up couldn't have looked <laughs> less glamorous or appealing. And, you know, he grew up as an only child of very poor parents. And yet there, in the midst of that, he found a paradise that since then he's transmitted really soaringly to so many people around the globe. And just as you say, one of maybe the surprises in this book is that just about all the places where I'm looking for paradise are places of conflict, whether it's Kashmir or Jerusalem or Sri Lanka or Belfast or um, Iran or, or North Korea. Um, and sometimes they're places of conflict because your vision of paradise doesn't agree with mine. And in Belfast, the Catholics' vision and the Protestants' vision is constantly at odds, even though really they seem to believe in the same God and, and the same 
Bible. Um, so it speaks again for my sense that sadly the world is never going to be a one mind or one heart, but nonetheless we have to find a paradise in the midst of our divisions. And I realize I didn't answer your earlier question, why did I start the book in Iran, which of course is another place of conflict. But the, the easy reason is uh, Iran is the place that gave us the word paradiser. And also of all the places I've been, I can truly say that if you sit out in a garden in the evening in Iran, and you smell the flowers and there are lights all along, all around and soft music and you stretch out on a divan and a waiter brings you sweet watermelon and strong tea, you really feel closer to paradise than anything I've been. That, that Iran, to some extent, gave us the notion of an earthly paradise, which is a representation of the paradise that awaits people after their death. But of course, in modern Iran, as we're hearing a lot in our headlines right now, the ruling clerics believe that paradise belongs completely in the afterlife, and it's martyrs who get there first. And many of the citizens of Iran believe that they have to get paradise right now through you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. So behind closed doors, they're enjoying a very worldly sensory paradise. And both sides of that uh, conflicting world, also quoting the great Sufi poets who, like all mystics, say that um, paradise only exists within. So there in Iran, you have the origin of paradise, but you also have um, a classic conflict about whether paradise belongs on the far side of life or in the here and now. Now, remind listeners, my guest today is Pico Iyer. His latest book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. In the center of the book, we get to really what I, I felt was a strong core. I knew that you were writing about Jerusalem. You had mentioned that it was something you've been thinking about for a long time. And as it appears in the book, um, I, I have to say I was quite um stunned by this because it seems to me that Jerusalem is almost impossible to sum up uh, and distill into a, a paragraph that reflects all of the religions of the world. And what you write here is that um, Jerusalem was a parable that had turned into a cautionary tale, a warning about what we do when we're convinced we know it all. And as you write and also write in the book, this is a this is a city. It's a cacophony of different religions in very tight quarters. So, as you as you reflect on this book and all of the places you've been, how does Jerusalem fit into this equation of the half known life? Well, again, I mean, thank you for noticing. It's very deliberately in the very center of the book, and I think everybody knows that Jerusalem, for all its existence, has been the center of conflict and also the center of hope. We're always dreaming of a new Jerusalem. And I think that's a, a, a valuable and inspiring thing to, to um, always have in our minds. And I think what's sometimes shocking when first you go to Jerusalem is not just that the center of Islam, the center of Judaism, and the center of Christianity are within 300 meters of one another. And of course, they're all at odds, though they're all sons of Abraham, they're all monotheisms that come from a similar source. But even more within each of those traditions, there's so much conflict that the Sunni Islam, uh, Sunni Muslims are at odds with the Shia Muslims, that the ultra-Orthodox Jews are shouting at their secular cousins. And that right at the center of Jerusalem, 
And then the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which, Sepulchre, which by many accounts is one of the holiest places in Christendom, there are six Christian orders, and each of them is battling against the other. If the Franciscans step one inch into uh, Greek Orthodox territory, the Greek Orthodox monks will attack them with brooms or vice versa. And actually, the Christian orders have come to outright warfare while sleeping under the same roof and believing in the same God. So it's a, a humbling place in that way. And it reminds me why my friend the Dalai Lama, with whom I've spent 48 years regularly talking, really one of the most respected religious figures on the planet, nonetheless recently brought out a book called Beyond Religion and feels that in some ways religion can divide us even though the whole heart of religion is about uniting us. And yet having said all of that, Jerusalem is a magnetic and inspiring place. And it really hits, hits me because I'm not a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian. And yet sometimes I'll be walking down the street here in Japan and I'll just feel myself magnetically pulled towards Jerusalem. And when I was in Jerusalem, day after day, almost against my will, I would find myself going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and sitting in a little chapel that ignored by almost everybody else, nothing there but a barren, rocky ledge and a single guttering candle. And something about that place just moved me almost to tears. And it might have to do with its history or its simplicity or everything that's taken place there for 2,000 years and more. But there's no doubting in my mind that Jerusalem speaks to the most beautiful and hopeful part of our soul. But what humans have done with Jerusalem <laughs> is often not so exalted. And I suppose it does stand to me for something essential about the world, which is that there really is the capacity for beauty and wonder. It's just that when we say this is my beauty or this is the only wonder, the troubles begin. But the fact that humans make a mess of the heavens doesn't mean that the heavens don't exist or that the heavens aren't wonderful. Um, and Jerusalem is wonderful in spite of the seemingly unresolved conflicts. And so right after having Jerusalem, as you say, at the core of this book, the very next chapter, I introduce the Dalai Lama, who's an interesting character too, because although a lifelong Buddhist, he's delivered um, a series of lectures on the Gospels and, and tears come to his eyes uh, when he thinks about Jesus and the parable of the mustard seed. And so for me, there's an interesting example of somebody looking to another tradition for guidance and prepared to realize that his truth is not the only truth, which maybe is the best way we could get through our divided world or past it. It makes me think of something that you write in, early in the book. And as I was moving toward the end, I don't know why this line stayed with me, but there, there is a a line, I believe it came from something that uh, a friend of yours wrote, but it is this, it's no rebirth is possible without a painful extinction. But what does that, what does that observation mean in terms of kind of how you sum up the book, uh, which is how, how can we get to a better place? How can the world improve? We're, we're polarized, we're divided. Do we need to let go of something Perfectionism, certainly, and judgment, but is there something else that needs to happen before we really can move into that journey into the half-known life? Well, in our individual lives, 
um, I think most of us are doing it. In other words, nobody on earth wanted a pandemic. Nobody would want, again, this horror that took millions and millions of lives and left the whole world incapacitated. And as you said, has left us with a pandemic sensibility and uh, economies and, and personal fortunes shattered. But I think almost everybody who's still alive at this point found that the pandemic moved them to think differently about how they were going to live, to remember what they cared about, and often to make fairly dramatic changes in their lives. I think most of the people I know have they've changed their job, they've, changed, they've moved home, they've decided to work from home instead of going to the office. They've suddenly recalled, this is really what... Um, I have to do, or this is really what I love and care about, and I don't have all the time in the world. This is where I want to turn my attention. And so I think many of us were really speeding at such a high acceleration three years ago that we were living lives that we hadn't necessarily chosen and that weren't always very healthy for us. And we weren't really in a position and didn't have the time and space to make to to see that we were going wrong or to, to think constructively about how we might live differently. And I think mm. this enforced pause for all its pain has moved many of us to um, decide, oh, you know, I, I was going in the wrong direction before. I do have this chance to, to remake my life in some ways. So I think that's actually an example of where going through this collective trauma has allowed some people to come out living in a, in a healthier and, and perhaps more directed way than before. In terms of getting across the divisions, I think in this book I come over and over again to people with the wisdom uh, to learn from traditions different from their own. So as you know, apart from the Dalai Lama, one of the central people in the book is Thomas Merton the great uh, Trappist monk who, after 27 years uh, being devoutly living in his uh, Cistercian monastery in Kentucky, went to India, had three long conversations with the Dalai Lama, went to Sri Lanka, came upon this mystical, life-changing revelation looking at some Buddhas in Sri Lanka, and then four days later died, apparently electrocuted by a fan in Bangkok. And so what's very moving when I think about Thomas Merton meeting the Dalai Lama is there is a lifelong Catholic who's really eager to learn from a Buddhist. And there is a lifelong Buddhist really eager to learn from a Catholic, neither of them, and each so grounded in his own tradition that he, he's open to learning from everybody. So I think we all realize that we can get through our divisions only by listening rather than talking and only by approaching the world as if we were students rather than teachers. And one aspect of the half-known life is that I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought, I know it all. I'm on top of the world. I can determine my destiny. And the older I've got, the more I see that it's other forces I have no control over, like a virus or a forest fire, that are really determining determining my destiny and that I'm not a master of the universe, I'm a servant of the universe. And in some ways, the more I can look to the universe in that spirit, that um, I'm, I'm, as it were, its, it's student, the, the healthier and happier I will be. And that partly what's at the center of that is not needing to impose my prejudices on others. That sometimes the illusion of knowledge is worse than ignorance. And when I think I, I, I know everything, that's when I'm in trouble. Surprises are inexhaustible and that the, the world is always going to take us by surprise, which is a humbling lesson, but I found a kind of 
liberating lesson. Well, it is humbling, but it's also very hopeful. And I think the half-known life is a reminder to keep an open and curious mind. That's the path for more information coming into our brain that can settle us, excite us, and make us happy to be to be alive. You know, after writing this book, uh, which is really, as I mentioned in the introduction, a culmination of, of so much uh, traveling and thinking and meditating about the great cultures. What what excites you? What excites you now? Is there anything that you can share about what you're working on next? I can. And again, thank you for, for highlighting the hope uh, at the heart of this book and my vision of the world, because that's exactly what I wanted to, to transmit in this difficult time. And wonderfully, uh, I'm sending next week uh, what I hope is almost the finished manuscript of my next book, which is almost a companion piece to this, because it's about 31 years I've spent with a group of Benedictine monks uh, in California. And I've I've made a retreat there more than 100 times. I've grown old with the monks there. And of course, a monastery in certain level is a paradise. Uh, it's a walled garden set away from the tumult of the world. But it's also um, a place where uh, <laughs> the monks are great realists and their lives are very difficult often. So they don't have any illusions about paradise. But I thought since this book was, as you said, about traveling across many foreign places to think about why are we living? So it's a subject very, very close to my heart. Uh, and I hope that that book will be out in the next year or two because it feels complete to me. And I suppose the other part that I should say about that, which goes with everything I've been saying, is I've been spending all this time with these Benedictine monks, but I'm not a Christian myself. And the fact that these people rooted in their Catholic faith can um, offer so much sustenance and kindness and companionship to somebody who's not a Catholic is itself um, <laughs> really inspiring to me. Well, that does seem like a very natural follow on to this book. This book is such a gift. It comes at a time when we are really uh, reevaluating. As you said, we have come through a pandemic. We're thinking about things differently. And um, the half-known life in search of paradise is a real good place to land. Pico, I can't thank you enough for spending some time here today. It's really been such an education and a privilege to be able to talk to you about this. Well, real privilege for me too, Laurie. And thank you for reading this book and so many books so, so carefully uh, and, and for championing uh, reading and, and writing and what we do. And just before we end, I will tell any listeners who had that question about our last talk about 72 seasons in the year that uh, in fact, there's a wonderful book written about it called East Wind Meets the Ice by Liza Dalby, who's the rare foreigner who actually lived in Kyoto for a year uh, working as a geisha and brought out a wonderful book called Geisha uh, as her doctoral thesis at Stanford about the geisha world. And she describes in beautiful detail the 72 micro seasons of the classical Japanese and probably Chinese year. But thank you again, Laurie, especially for taking such care about books. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are available on the KXCV Bearcat public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like more information about the program guests, 
head over to realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.